and, and so like the idea of meditation, spirituality, was inherent in every physical activity. You brought the meditation into the physical activity and vice versa. Hey folks, Mark Devine with you with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Thanks so much for your time today. Welcome back. I have a super interesting guest, Sanjay Rawal, with me today. We're at Dodger Stadium where I was interviewing Joe DeSana of the Spartan Race and lots of other folks and spent just an incredible day. And I, before I get into the interview with Sanjay, I want to remind you about our initiative this year to uh, support vets who are suffering with post-traumatic stress. So we are doing 22 million burpees. That's a big, hairy, audacious goal. I need help. I can't do it all alone. If I could, I would. But it's more fun with the team. So we're raising a team to do 22 million burpees. Go to burpeesforvets.com. We're already 8 million committed. We've raised over $150,000. So we're going to go all the way. Burpeesforvets.com. Check it out. I need your help. And the latest edition, the new edition of my book, The Way of the Seal, is due to be published on Memorial Day. So go to wayoftheseal.com to um, check that out and also get a free PDF of all the exercises and, and um, you know, journaling exercises. So, all right. Sanjay Rawal. I just met Sanjay. He's documenting. He's a videographer, right? And a runner, I imagine. Okay, so I'm, I'm winging this because I don't have any prep here, but Sanjay is um, working on a project called 3100. Run and Become. Run and Become, and it's based upon a 3100-mile race. 3100-mile race. And also, as part of this project, he's chronicling racing or running cultures where running was not a sport, but it was done for spiritual development or spiritual practice like the running monks and this is just a fascinating subject to me Sanjay like how did you get interested in this subject tell us first of all tell us a little bit more about what the subject because my fumbling intro was did not do it justice but Mark it was it was a perfect introduction because I, I think that we're coming at this field of ancient practices from the exact same place mm-hmm. uh, looking at modern manifestations of these ancient ideals Mm-hmm. There's a race called the 3,100-mile race, the self-transcendence 3,100-mile race, which was actually founded by an Indian spiritual teacher named Sri Chinmoy. Okay. The race takes place— Not Native American, but Indian. Yeah, East Indian. East Indian, okay. The race has taken place the last 22 years in New York City, in Queens, around a half-mile loop. Why in Queens? I mean, it seems like this would be done out in the wilderness on some trail somewhere— across the countryside? (laughs) That's a great question. People have to run at least 60 miles a day for 52 days. And when you're doing these multi-day races, one of the most important tools you can have to get into a zone is consistency. So it's like they're circling this block over and over and over, but every half a mile, they have all the aid they need, all the medical attention they need, portisans. But at the end of the day, 3,100 miles, it's not about the physical body, no matter yeah. where you do it. Right. It's got to be about the heart. It's got to be about mental control and finding joy in what most human beings look at as excruciating pain or mind-numbing boredom. And it's the opposite of that. It's an experience of bliss. It's an experience of transcendence and hopefully takes the participants a step closer to enlightenment. Wow. That is amazing. And so throughout history, there have been pockets of native or, or 
probably native is not the right word, but ancient cultures that have used running for spiritual development. What are some of those and, and do they still endure today? So our movie comes out in August in theaters, but making a movie about people running around a block would be the most boring movie. Yeah, that sounds pretty in the entire world. boring. There's only so many images you can use. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we, we did go around the world to try to find the last few remaining cultures that do what we did 100,000, a million years ago. And that was literally... We were born to run, by the way. Yeah. You know, human beings were meant to move and to run through the woods and to climb and... And we felt good. That was, that was that. the first form of religion. We prayed with our feet. We prayed with our breath. We learned to breathe in Mother Earth, to step you know, towards Father Sky. Mm. And we all did this. Mm -hmm. But not very many cultures still are in existence that do that. So you know, we, we went to spend three weeks hunting with the Kalahari Bushmen, the sand Bushmen of this gigantic desert in Botswana mm -hmm. that are one of the last remaining cultures in Africa that hunt one, two, three days at a time and wear out animals, get them exhausted. No kidding. So, like, you know, like, they we just stay on them until there's, they collapse, huh? Yeah, like if you try to think about it, like what was the advantage of ancient men and women in the savanna when we were up against hyenas, lions, giraffes, wildebeest, we, and we, we weren't physically better than any of them. There were two things that we had an advantage um, regarding. Like, number one, we, we stand on two feet. So mm -hmm. our, our breathing isn't coupled to our gait. You can imagine like the elongation of like a horse stride. It's like when, when the legs are spread apart, the animal breathes in. But when the, the legs collapse together, the lungs are forced to expel air. Our, our breathing wasn't coupled to our gait. But secondly, unlike any other animal except a camel, we could carry water. So what we ended up doing was finding an animal that we wanted to hunt. Wait, hang on. You just blew my mind there. So those two things, I like when you started that little dialogue, I was thinking, yeah, what makes human difference is that they, they had a brain that could visualize an outcome and they could create tools and hunt as a team. Oh, oh, oh. oh that's true. But I never would have thought of... Breathing be associated with gait, but you're absolutely right. That's fascinating. And that changes physiology and it changes endurance, probably. Exactly. So we're, we're talking about a time before there are any real tools except stones. You're not going to be able to kill an elk with a stone unless the elk is wiped out and you're like five feet away from it. So the idea was to carry a skin full of water. Carry water and your tools. And then you, you end up, you know where all the watering holes are and you can track an animal expertly. So you chase the animal away from the watering hole. It takes off at 30 miles an hour. You lose sight of it within five minutes, but you track it. You find it again. He's going away from water, which means his time is limited. Yeah. So across one or two days, you're consistently chasing a single animal you've identified. And they're running. They're running. Hmm. They're jogging, walking, jogging, running. Like yeah. you, you, you end up over two days exhausting an animal. So when the two days are up or when the day and a half is up, when you get close to the animal and the animal can no longer run away from you, then you have the opportunity to kill an animal that even if it's, a, if it's, a, uh, an, you know, it's a, like an herbivore, like a gigantic elk, it could still kill you, you know, if it charges at you. But it's so tired and exhausted that you could get within five feet of it and club it. You can throw rocks at it. You end up killing it on sight. Hmm. And if it was something as big as a giraffe, you don't need to butcher it and take it back to your village. You send a runner back to the village, 
and the entire village moves to Comes the site of the kill. It, huh? yeah. yeah. Interesting. So right now, the Bushmen are not allowed to hunt anymore. The government discovered mineral wealth in their desert. You're kidding me. And so they, oh, like, hunting is banned. But we found a couple of Bushmen that were so passionate for their cause that they went on a traditional hunt with us, made us film it, and at great risk to themselves. Like if they were caught hunting, they would have been shot by rangers. Even if they didn't kill the animal at the yeah. end? Yeah, the rangers have a shoot-to-kill policy. That is hard to believe. Yeah. This is Botswana. What country is this again? Botswana. Botswana. It's, it's, it's a black African country, but you see this around the world where the Western-educated mindset is so anti-indigenous. It's so anti-ancient. Like, oh, look in the United yeah. States. It's like they didn't have horses until 400 years ago. Like, people ran for transportation. People ran to hunt. People ran to trade. Mm-hmm. People ran as a culture. Oh, you just sparked a memory of that really amazing movie, The Last Mohican. Yes. Where they were running. They were running. Running they, warriors. And that's how they outflanked and outsmarted, you know, the, the redcoats, were they? Or yeah. Who? And yeah, they, they you were. get your energy from the earth. And it's a very physical, elemental form of worship where you're yeah. sustaining yourself, not based on nutrition. Like they weren't taking 10,000 calories a day like the 3,100-mile runners do. They were taking little bits of corn. Right. They knew where all the watering spots were, but they were energized yeah. by their breath. Right. That's very yogic. I want to come back to that. It's just fascinating to me. Hey, folks. Mark here. Listen up. I've got a secret weapon for you to make your working out and training more efficient and to get better results and faster. It's called the Halo Sport, and I love this tool. Simply put, training with a Halo Sport allows you to develop your muscle memory faster. The headset applies electrostimulation to your brain's motor cortex to induce a temporary state of hyperlearning. How cool is that? That means you're going to get better results faster from anything that you do where you need to learn by moving, such as your Silfit Wad, martial arts training, yoga, Tai Chi, or even running. Now, I interviewed Halo's CEO, Dr. Daniel Chow, a while back, and I was really impressed by his team and this underlying technology, the science of transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, which has over 15 years of scientific and military research behind it. I now personally use Halo Sport for many of my high-intensity wads and when I do my Tai Chi training where I'm trying to learn some new form. When I train my movements with the Halo Sport, I do learn faster and I get more precision and I feel I can perform more aggressively. Halo Sport's already being used extensively in the military special operations communities. And from my SEAL friends, I've heard that they get great results. It's also used by many pro athletes, Olympians, and thousands of lifelong athletes just like you and I. So in my mind, Halo Sport is the ideal training tool for those like you who want to exceed your training goals. To learn more about the Halo Sport, go to haloneuro.com. That's H-A-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. And you can use the code UNBEATABLEMIND, all one word, UNBEATABLEMIND at checkout to get this awesome product for $475, which is $275 off of the retail price. Again, haloneuro.com. Use the code UNBEATABLEMIND. You won't be disappointed. This is a great tool. All right, let's get back to the show. Hoo-yah. 
What other cultures, though, have you seen or, you know, ancient kind of practices or warriors have you seen in your journey? So we, we were fortunate enough to have access to a group called the Senichi Kaihogyo. In the West, they're called the Marathon Monks. They're I've ba- heard of them. They're Japanese, right? Yeah, they're based outside of Kyoto. And once every 12 years, they pick a man or a woman um, to do a thousand days of running. It doesn't sound like much. A thousand days are split into 10 hundred-day chunks. So each year they'll do 100 days or 200 days. The first chunk of 100 days requires them to do an 18-mile circuit on a single track, um, wooded pathway in sandals. Doesn't seem like a lot. At the end of their last 100 days, they're up to 56 miles a day. But the stakes are as high as they can go. It takes a warrior mentality to even start this because if you don't complete your daily mileage, you're forced to kill yourself. No one's killed themselves in 100 years because they're a lot more careful on who they select. But that's the stakes. And plenty of graves are strewn across this mountain really? of monks that have failed the challenge. So you have to commit ritualistic seppuka, essentially? You're given a rope and a knife. So you have a choice at that fateful moment. You're kidding me. No. And people go into this knowing that, you know, the, the only way out is for me to finish this or to kill myself. And so we, we talked to them about, about that idea of suicide. It reminds me of SEAL training because I went and said, that in order for them to get me to quit, I, they'll have to kill me. That, that's the exact thing. They, they said, number one, that purity of consequence makes their tradition remain pure. Hmm. The severity of the consequence keeps their tradition pure. But number two, they said nobody enters in to the challenge thinking about suicide yeah, because the not. only way to get through it is to find deeper and deeper levels of joy. Mm-hmm. But it keeps the tradition pure, it keeps the practice pure, and it prevents them from diluting what is eventually a transformative experience for you know one person every 12 years. <laughs> My mind is just like, well, I don't even understand why, why one person every 12 years? Why don't they do it every year? And why don't they take 10 people you know, they, 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 they require a series of challenges to get to that level. Number one, they make the initiates do 100 straight days. And they wear these like Star Wars looking Jedi robes and they're in bamboo sandals. So, I mean, it's like, it's like blisters galore. So That's if you don't make it to the first 100 days, you don't have to kill yourself. You're, you're, you're out you're as out. a monk. Um, then they put you in a temple that's probably 40 feet by 40 feet. So there's more than one monk, new monk every 12 years. Yeah, so they, they, they have this system. That's just like the system. pinnacle experience. Yeah, they, they have a whole bunch of monks that join, but they pick one out of all those who join to ultimately do this thousand-day quest. Hmm. And after they complete it, if they complete it, they're considered in Japan as living Buddhas because hmm. they've gone to the edge of death. They've understood what it means to actually be mortal. They've seen the other side of the veil. And so, we, you know, it's, it's that idea. easier ways to pierce the veil, I it's think. True. You know. It's true. A thousand days on the meditation bench. It's true. <laughs> you know, day might do it. But it's, it's that idea of looking it's at... so at, inspiring, though. Wow. Like a rite of passage. Like, right. like, like you guys focus on, like, what's a rite of passage between stages of consciousness? Right. And when you get up to a level where the ultimate stage is enlightenment, the, right, the physical rite of passage is going to be more than just like a long run or like a hike. It's going to be something that requires a decade of preparation and like you mentioned, like the willingness from the participant to end their life in the pursuit of that goal. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So are there other cultures 
There's two, the Bushmen and the Running Monks, um, both of whom have this, these insane lifestyles. What else have you encountered that's out there right in front of our eyes, but we don't see? So we spent a lot of time with a Navajo ultramarathoner named Sean Martin. And oh, I've heard of Sean, yeah. He run, he, he's got a, a race called the Canyon de Chez Ultramarathon okay. that, he, that he's, a, he's a director of. But he comes from a, a now pretty marginalized tradition of Native American elite runners. Mm-hmm. Um, most tribes relied on runners to be able to trade, to be able to pass messages. Right. And so they would train those runners. And in many tribes, those runners were expected to live a monastic tradition, to be celibate even, uh, to be vegetarian, and to be so connected to the earth that on a moment's notice, they could run 70 miles. They could run no 100 kidding. miles. No kidding. And so there are very few tribes that have been able to keep that tradition unbroken. And when they have, they've kept it very secret mm-hmm. because it's one of the last things that they've kept pure and away from like the capitalist colonizers. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean's dad's a medicine man. And one of Sean's dad's roles is to keep that school of Navajo running spirituality alive. Nice. Um, so we spent a lot of time with Sean. And to say Does that... Does he have like Navajo students or is he just kind of trying to keep the knowledge of, of this past tribe alive? Both. So his, his day job is as the athletic director of one of the biggest high schools on the Navajo reservation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's at altitude. It's at 5,000, 6,000 feet. They've mm-hmm. got the most beautiful running trails in the entire United States. Oh, wow. And Sean and an organization he's part of called Wings of America based in Santa Fe they don't see any reason why the next generation of world champions shouldn't be coming from the Navajo reservation or from the Pueblos or those Southwestern reservations mm-hmm. at altitude where people are literally, like you said, born to run. Mm. I mean, they understand that running is the way you commune with Mother Earth. It's mm-hmm. through your feet. That's awesome. So let's talk about kind of the spiritual component. I mean, you mentioned that... They're taking in energy through their breath and through their feet. They don't need to eat much um, when they're running. What do you think is happening from your point of view, your perspective? You know, this has been one of the most fascinating concepts to me. The 3,100-mile race was started by an East Indian spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy. And one doesn't think of East Indians as running. because think of yoga, ashrams. I think of soft arts. But that said, like, Tai Chi was given to China by Bodhidharma. A ma- yeah, and a, a master yogi. Yeah. And so the the idea of spirituality and physicality was at the root of East Indian and Buddhist philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's only right. been in the last 400 or 500 years that that's been yeah. separated. Yeah, I've often said that, you know, in fact, uh, yoga has a very martial lineage, especially in northern India, mm-hmm. and one of the oldest martial arts. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. It starts with a K, Kap- not Kapilani, but something like that. Um, and when you look at imagery of people practicing it, it's like a hybrid, you know, one moment they're doing, you know, a down dog and the next moment they're flying through the air, you know, exactly. It's so pretty like, interesting. Like this race is called the self-transcendence race. And from an East Indian perspective, that concept of self-transcendence is like the highest form of spiritual bliss, like elevating your consciousness, going upwards level by level in terms of your, your ability to, to understand and process um, consciousness. But at the same time, I think East Indian and Eastern teachers use the martial arts as a way for people to understand that you can experience 
little bits of self-transcendence instantly through the physical. Right. If you have a better workout today than you did yesterday, you transcend. You get a taste of that joy. Right. And it's an it's ultimately much easier to understand spiritual concepts if you're also practicing them physically. Right. And and so like the idea of meditation, spirituality was inherent in every physical activity. You brought right. the meditation into the physical right. activity and vice that's versa. That's brilliant. I love that because that's what we teach. Exactly. That's what we teach at Kokoro Yoga and is that, and, uh, and is that all movement is a meditative practice when done with that intention and with the alignment of the breath and the moving the breath, which moves the mind, which moves the body, which moves the emotions, and it all aligns and integrates. And that I agree with that. Transcendence is to begin to transcend the separation between feeling that you're a physical body with a brain with an emotional life and you know, to really appreciate that your consciousness exists independent of all that. And one of the, one of the reasons why I'm so inspired by That's the work cool. that you do is, I mean, it, it seems so obvious yet people unfortunately don't really take it as importantly as they should. Like you can't live a happy life if you wake up sick. Correct. And so conversely, like the stronger your physical is, the more in shape you are, the more potential you have to achieve happiness. And yes, right. Peace of mind. Peace of mind. Yeah, so exactly. let's define happiness. Happiness to me is uh, peaceful. And what's more spiritual than the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of peace of mind? Right. And it's like if you can get there faster by including this great tool of the physical right. body, like why wouldn't we? Yeah, and, and I love that. You're absolutely right, Sanjay. And, and you know, said another way, if you're broken or diseased, you know, because you're out of balance, you know, health is homeostatic balance. If you're physically out of balance, then guess what? Your brain is going to be out of balance because your brain is, and your brain is the executive agent of your mind. Your mind is how you experience and perceive reality. So if you're physically unfit, then you're mentally unfit. And if you stub your toe, then you have a, a, a brain injury, <laughs> so to speak. Someone, I just had that conversation the other day with someone that was blowing me away. But there's a lot of truth. It's conflating a little bit to, you know, the objective materialistic realm. But to think that if I stub my toe or if I have, um, if I have a physical injury or a disease, that's the same thing as an injury to the mind because it's my mind that's perceiving that injury and that limitation that's, that's preventing me from being a whole person in this moment in time. So here's a question I have for you that I'm sure you answer over and over and over. Um, but like in the 3,100-mile race, you could either look at it as a series of injuries, like going from blister to trauma to trauma to, to trauma, trauma to trauma. How do you transcend that? How do you, what, like what, what do you need to do to be able to understand that none of these things are actually problems? Yeah, because in my opinion, this is the way I would I do that type of thing, is to um, recognize that none of that is real. It's perception. Pain is perception. Injuries are temporary, and the human capacity is, we say, 20 times more. You know, someone just told me that it's 100 times more, so we got upper game. And so if you have purity of intent and a mission to accomplish, you know, because I'm not saying that the physical body could, could perform forever and ever and ever and ever in an injured state. Eventually, you need to take time to recover. But with 3,100 miles, like now we're seeing like, wow. Nobody would ever really would think that's possible to run for 3,100 miles because, like you said, you're going to be injured. You cannot run that far without doing major trauma to your body, to your limbs, to your joints. 
And so the mind just has to create a new association with that pain to where that is not real. That's perception. My perception of reality, I'm in control over, right? And so I create a new relationship with that trauma and that pain, which is going to allow me to get into this transcendent state where all of a sudden it goes away and I make friends with it and I'm able to keep going. Yeah, this is really beneficial to me because the longest distance I've run was six days. Mm -hmm. And I got injured uh, after about 15 hours. Mm -hmm. And I stopped for a few hours to rest. Mm -hmm. And stopping was so painful that I realized that if I kept moving, I would feel better. And Mm -hmm. so I stayed in the race. Mm -hmm. And I had a pulled hamstring. And after four days, the hamstring healed. I I pulled hamstrings before, and they've taken three weeks of sedentary rest. You gave the hamstring a new reality. And your body-mind system said, okay. Normally, I'd stop and recover, but this knucklehead isn't going to let me do that, right? He's not doing that. So I better get my egg recovery game going and, and heal on the fly. You, you, you nailed it. I'm, I'm like nowhere near what the elite multi-day runners do. But like the first day, I was at about 65 miles. Then I got injured and I was doing 36 to 40 miles on a pulled hamstring. Dang. And it healed. It healed. Like no doctor, no doctor would ever tell you, oh, go oh, do 40 miles a day. Against to all conventional wisdom. Now, I know you appreciate some soreness brought on by getting busy with a bruising workout. But doesn't it suck when excessive soreness throws us off our game, causing us to back down on our effort, or even erasing those hard-won gains? That is why building recovery into our training plan is so important. Now, one way that I do that is with a simple-to-use recovery and healing tool called PowerDot. PowerDot is an electrical muscle stimulation device that forces type 2 muscle contractions, allowing you to increase muscle performance, speed up recovery, and also find a deeper mind-body connection. I've used complicated stim devices in the past, to heal from my back injuries, but those were clumsy devices and not very effective to use for everyday use. The PowerDot, however, is a game changer because of its simplicity and the control through a well-designed mobile app. It's portable and powerful, making it usable for daily recovery or as needed for excessive soreness and to ward off potential overtraining injuries. PowerDot puts professional-level physical therapy into your gritty hands saving valuable time and money. Now, the PowerDot team loves us at SealFit and Unbeatable Mind, and they have a generous offer for us. You can get 25% off the device when you go to PowerDot.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-D-O-T.com. And use the code UNBEATABLEMIND, all one word, UNBEATABLEMIND, at the checkout. So again, receive 25% off of one of my favorite tools for achieving increased muscle performance, and recovery by going to power.com and using that code UNBEALMIND. Hoo-yah. Same, I, I tell the story about Hell Week. You know, everyone knows about Hell Week, but not many people get to experience it, right? There's, not, there's only a few SEALs out there. They're not mass-produced. But over the years, there's been, you know, thousands of guys who've gone through Hell Week. Our experience is always a little bit different, but it has commonalities. And so one of the commonalities for me, so now six days nonstop around the clock, it's not dissimilar to what you did, no sleep. And lots of micro trauma going on, you know, little injuries and tweaks and here and there, but you just ignore them. You know, I have friends who ran on broken legs for three days. 
stress fracture, full-on stress fractures. That. They just I ran on them. I believe it. You know, this changed relationship with the pain and just kept going. But for me, by Thursday of Hell Week, we started Sunday. So now we've been going for four days around the clock, no sleep. I started developing muscle mass. I mean, I kid you not, I started packing it on. <laughs> we were eating a lot and we were just constantly working. And my body just said, screw it. This doesn't seem like it's ever going to stop. I better start putting some, and we got all this cold water. And I'm going to start putting some meat on this boy. And I was getting ripped. This is the strangest thing. Because everyone, the conventional wisdom would be like, man, at the end of all that, you're just going to be like this broken down, you know, well, stick see, figure. The, the Bushmen said the same thing. They, they said that the human, the human body is meant to run under stress. Like if you were if you were only running to hunt, which is what you did, yeah. um, you weren't hunting when your belly was full. You were hunting when you were out of food. Right. And so they said the body's most evolutionarily dependent systems of strength only kick in when you think your tank's on empty. Mentally and physically, you get into a different physiological zone. Like we had to be able to run when we were hungry because if we didn't run, we didn't eat. Right. So the body had to be able to run 60, 80, 100 miles on zero calories, on very little water, in the heat, and with the stress of having to feed a village. Hmm. So somehow there's an adaptation that occurs, and it's probably ketosis, right? And now in a modern context, we say, well, yeah, because you're, pro you're producing ketones. The severe deprivation of actual food stuff, you know, macronutrients, has forced your body into a ketosis, and that's not affected. It may even be stimulated by the running. And you said, as long as you get water, right? Yeah. You can't do it without water. And you said at the beginning, like the, the the mentality of being a warrior is a key to unlocking a lot of that potential. Like hmm. you, you wouldn't even get into ketosis. You'd like curl into a ball with hunger <laughs> if you didn't have a warrior mindset. Like I'm going right. to go out and hunt for my food to feed my village. So it's like that mental mindset is like the trigger for all these physiological processes. I think right. you guys, you know, are at the heart of that, but it's like Western society is not even close to understanding the power of that reality. That's really interesting. So did you grow up in India yourself? Or? You know, I was, I was, my parents are Indian. They spent time in, in West Africa. Mm -hmm. and that's where I was born. But I basically grew up in Boulder, Colorado and Berkeley. Oh, you did? Yeah. Not, <laughs> so not, you're not an immigrant. Are you a citizen? Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, okay. I was, it was, yeah, I came here when I was seven months old at a time when it was really easy to yeah. get citizenship. Right. Do you get back to India very often? I do. I, I go back there regularly. And one of the things that's fascinated me is looking at cultures that have been totally westernized, mm -hmm. like India pretty much is. Yeah. And looking at spiritual traditions that people never realized were practiced. Like mm -hmm. in Tibet, there was a, a running practice called Longompa. I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, and like the, the monastery where it was developed is still there. But I think the that's what I was thinking about when I first heard of the running monks, but it's actually the Tibetans. Yeah. And they're, they're more of a, a monk like where they all run together at night, right? Yeah, and okay. like, like the, the, their training was three years of deep pranayama and yogic levitation. Like they would mm. sit in lotus position and use their breath to elevate their body physically. Okay. No you know, by a, maybe like, you know, you use your hip muscles and your, yeah. you push your knees down and you might be able to go up like a millimeter. But by the end of three years of being isolated in caves doing this, they would be able to like burst up a meter at a time. Holy cow. And like when they were able to hit that physical standard, 
they were allowed to begin running. And so they're... From a lotus position, they were able to come a meter off the ground. Yeah, and that strength of breath. Strength of breath and complete control over physiology. And that's what they used in running. So when people saw them as late as the 30s and 40s, before the, the, the Chinese occupation wiped them all out, the people didn't even recognize it as running. Like people who've witnessed them saw them taking extremely long bounds. Like they weren't running as much horizontal as it didn't they were running vertical. didn't look like you and I going out and running. No, no, but they were running effectively six-minute pace, and they would do runs for 24 hours. But because they weren't really rolling on their feet, in the daytime, people noticed that they were running over boulder fields. They weren't running on smooth ground because their legs would touch, their feet would touch the ground for such a small period of time that they were mainly just springing instead of like, you know, plunging and mm-hmm. rolling and pushing. Um, and so there are these traditions that we think of as like legendary or as oh. ancient, but it was a way of life. Right. <laughs> my, my brain is trying to wrap around that. That is so amazing. I mean, the amount of discipline training it takes to get to that level. Like, how couldn't an average person, you know, in your opinion, for someone who wants to run more for the joy of it and the health benefits? You know, most people think running is just flat out painful. But, you know, my experience when I was younger, I don't do a ton of running now, but it was really joyful. It's blissful. I would go out when I was in college and and just go for miles and miles, and I would just have this amazing, amazing, you know, and I would always run through nature and alone, and oh, it's awesome! I mean, that, it's awesome. that's how can the, the average person? What are your recommendations for people to start that experience? That that's the key to the, to the film thirty one hundred run and become because n- not everybody's going to become nobody can become a bushman nobody can become a Navajo you know no one's not, gonna, very few people are going to become a running monk no and they're not and, and people hours. won't want to run thirty one hundred miles around a block but the the question is like or the the the, the answer I should say is. If you can feel that your practice of physical fitness is spiritual, right. if you can develop spirituality around it, not just doing it regularly, but consciously feel that it's connecting you to whatever concept of the divine you believe in, mm-hmm. and know that it certainly is if you believe in it, then it becomes a lifestyle. Then it right. becomes a regular part of your life. Yeah, your running, pro- your running becomes a personal spiritual practice. And I used to run competitively, and I hated it. And I frankly only really got back into it since I've been making this movie mm-hmm. because I finally realized, like, I'm not running for times. I'm not running for achievements. I'm running for myself. Mm-hmm. And not just for physical health, but I'm running because it helps me be happy. And once I decoupled outer expectations and inner satisfaction, I've been able to get a lot more joy out of it. Wow, that's fantastic. Very cool. So um, the movie you said is out in the it, summer? movie comes out August 17th. August 17th. Our website is 3100.film. 3100.film. You can find us on Instagram at 3100film. 3100film. Okay. And when you're not doing this, is there anything else you're working on? Or you know, I've what's been, next? I've been fascinated by Native American cultures, mm-hmm. not as, as an outsider or as like an anthropologist, but because I've, I've come across some stories um, that Native friends have wanted me to film. And I'm working on a film right now called Gather, which is about Native American food traditions. Oh, cool. And the, the historical trauma of colonizers coming in and basically destroying food systems as a way to destroy people. Asymmetric warfare, mm-hmm. right? It's like, yeah. it, like Westerners... Get them sick and take their food away and then yeah, you're good Burn their fields, kill their buffalo. 
But it was one of the biggest fallacies of this country, thinking that it could destroy 10,000 years of agricultural knowledge and expect to recreate a new and better food system. Thank goodness there are pockets of Native American folks that have kept that wisdom secret and sacred. And we're, with, with their permission and their guidance, we're documenting aspects of it to help Natives around the country regenerate their food system. And my, and my own perspective as a non-Native is that it might take them 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years right. to gain food sovereignty. But until they do, the rest of us living on what they call Turtle Island, living mm-hmm. in North America, we have no chance. We don't have food security. We don't have, chan- we don't have a chance. Right. Like we've already go destroyed away, the land. You know, it could go away in a heartbeat. You know, one yeah. one off of the lights moment. And we don't EMP know how to, pulse or something, and the food gets looted. And you know, unless you know how to grow food, you're screwed. Exactly. So that film is gather. Gather, um, and that's kind of what I'm working on okay. right now. Well, good luck with that. We'll we'll have to circle back and and talk about that. Mark, I want, to th- I want to thank you personally for what you do. I've been so inspired by your books. I've been so inspired right by this podcast. Thank you. And uh, I wish there were 10,000 more of you. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. And ditto that. Sanjay, <laughs> thanks very much for thanks your time. Thanks so much, Mark. Guys, uh, check out 3100.film. I can't, I can't wait to see this. This is going to be fascinating. Uh, thank you, Sanjay, for your time. Uh, it's really nice to meet you. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity, yeah. Mark. Oh, yeah. Me as well. All right, folks. Thanks again for listening. Super appreciate you. We do not take it for granted here. We know there's a lot of things fine for your attention and time and um, the fact that you're tuning in so you can be unbeatable and live a better life. Uh, wow, that's that's really powerful. And uh, I think uh, I'm humbled by that. So, oh yeah, I'll keep doing it as long as you keep showing up. <laughs> Divine out. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frog.